This is an ABC podcast. How to understand the latest uber-hyped tech sensation that is ChatGPT. That's where we start this particular edition of Future Tense with me, Anthony Fennell. Here's some of the things I've distilled from the oceans of commentary that's flooded news websites over the past few months. Point number one, ChatGPT is fast and scary. Number two, it's almost human and scary. And point number three, it's going to lead to an avalanche of undetectable plagiarism in our schools and universities. And it's scary. You can see where this is heading. It's the scary part that seems to be the common thread among academic and media opinion. Brian Lucy at Trinity College Dublin. I think it's caught people's imagination and it has caught the general public to some extent and certainly the media and and business media imagination because for the first time there's something available to the general small p public which looks frighteningly like what scientists call artificial general intelligence. In other words, a brain in a box, a thing that can actually talk with you, give you meaningful, sensible, at least deep-seeming answers to fairly complex questions. Not just, hey, Alexa, play me a song, or what's the capital of the Northern Territories in Australia? You have complex human language. It gives you pretty reasonable responses, and that makes it easier for people to interact with. And people are certainly using it. It was only launched in late November, and yet it now has more than 100 million users, according to estimates. So what exactly is ChatGPT? The simplest answer is that it's a user-friendly artificial intelligence tool that can generate complicated answers to seemingly any question it's asked. And it can generate responses in essay form. Hence the reason why schools and universities are fearful that the program will be used to plagiarise assignments. So fearful, in fact, that school students in several Australian states have already been banned from using it. In this show, we'll ask whether there's any point in banning it, now that it's arrived, or are such moves akin to trying to outlaw calculators? We'll also hear from several educationalists who believe, despite its faults, the program can and probably will be a force for good. But let's start with another observation, that ChatGPT is far from unique. It's being developed by a US company called OpenAI, with funding from Microsoft, and it's actually an iteration on previous models. That's the first thing. It's also not the only advanced chatbot that's come onto the scene in recent times. What happened to one called Galactica is instructive. Here's Dr. Aaron Snoswell. So Galactica was a language model that was released by Meta, or the parent company of Facebook. What that means is it's an AI system that is designed to play a guess-the-next-word game. You prompt it with some text, and then it continues that text and tries to sort of have a conversation with you in that way. In the case of Galactica, the model was specifically designed to try and converse about scientific topics. And so they, in addition to training this model with data from the internet, like they typically are, they actually got a bunch of scientific papers and scientific databases and got the model to sort of memorise some of this information as well. And it was released in November 2022. 
and very quickly was pulled down again because there was widespread criticism from people in the AI industry as well as from scientists and very broad criticism from across society. Now, lasting three days before before you get pulled down is, is probably a bit of a record, isn't it? Uh, for, <laughs> Potentially. You know, what was it about Galactica that was so problematic in the end that found so much criticism? I think there were a number of different factors in this particular case. For instance, I think there was institutional issues here. Meta, for example, very recently, actually, um, before the Galactic announcement, had dissolved their responsible innovation team, which was a team dedicated to problems of bias and toxicity in these types of systems. But also the way that this release was done, I think, was a good case study, if you like, in terms of it was sort of half-baked. The technology was a bit more of a demo rather than a product, I guess. And so it was put up for anyone to play with without any guardrails in place or oversight or ongoing commitment to actually maintain it and improve it as users interacted with it. And then also the domain, I think, was an important factor here. So Galactica was specifically designed to converse about scientific topics. And because of that, it adopted a scientific sort of authority in the way that it conversed with users. And that's actually quite a red flag when this system can be making up information and, yeah, giving you information that's not 100% true. You don't want it to be sounding very authoritative because that could be... You need to be an expert to actually spot that it's making mistakes, potentially. The term that you used in a paper you wrote was that it it generated authoritative-sounding scientific nonsense. Yes. So stuff that really didn't add to our scientific knowledge and, in fact, could cause confusion and possibly misinformation. Yep, 100%. Now, ChatGPT isn't Galactica, but many people who've used it say it can and does get things wrong. It, too, can spit out highly plausible but factually incorrect statements – And that's because for all its cleverness, artificial intelligence is only as good as the data it's trained on. So what does that mean for its use in an educational setting? My name is Paul Fife. I'm Associate Professor of English at North Carolina State University. I've been assigning students to cheat, quote, quote, on their final papers for a few years now with earlier iterations of the GPT technology. And it was sort of a sneaky way to engage them in questions about its significance that are affecting us all. And their reactions range from, oh my God, I hate this and I'll never use it again, to, I can't wait for next semester. This is going to change my workflow. But the most interesting responses for me have been exploring the gray areas between, where students have changed their expectations about the capacities of AI and realized some of its risks and problems, realized how it might help them with brainstorming or getting through writer's block. And that includes students who don't self-identify as writers, which is a very persuasive case for how AI might help people kind of enter into conversations and professional situations that they've previously been excluded from. And it's been very disorienting. Some of my students, for instance, once they were finished with their papers, often couldn't tell in retrospect what they had written and what was the AI's contribution. Some of them felt like the AI was steering the direction of their essay or their work, and they had to let a lot go. And that is not necessarily a good thing at all when our goals are to cultivate in students their creative and critical intelligence. So is it possible that it will become these forms of AI text-generating programs, that they'll become a tool for writing in the same way, I guess, that a calculator has become a tool for the way in which we do mathematics, do counting? 
That seems to be the direction we're headed. More than likely, these kinds of tools will be baked into students' word processors before they graduate, if not a lot sooner, and probably our own writing platforms that we use. And it really reveals that we kind of lack a vocabulary for AI-assisted work, not to mention we lack all the social norms and institutional guardrails we need for it to move forward. It's just all the more important that we be having these conversations with students now. And according to Professor Fife, one of those conversations should be about whether the arrival of AI generative language programs presents an opportunity to question and rethink the conventional norms around student assessment. Now, students really don't like when we assume that they will cheat on things. That said, students also don't appreciate having to do busy work in which their assignments are already mechanical, right? Such as, for example, the infamous five-paragraph essay that may have outlived its usefulness as a tool for encouraging critical thinking. My colleague Chris Anson and writing scholars have been actually working for years to shift emphasis in writing studies from essay as product to writing as process. And ironically, artificial intelligence has sort of forced this issue, getting beyond an emphasis on the kind of product which you know may be synthetic or not, and really emphasizing to students all the complex processes that go into writing for which putting words down on the page is only the most obvious, but not even the most interesting. I think we're going to see a lot of shifts to a process-oriented pedagogy. Is that because the process of writing is actually about the formulation of arguments. It's about learning critical thinking. It's not just about the end product, as you say. It's a big part of it. There's a whole spectrum of kinds of cognitive activities that go along with it, from creative brainstorming to conceptualizing and refining an idea to thinking about outlining and structuring it to articulating it and thinking through the sort of logical flow of to thinking about acknowledgments and responses to arguments, perspectives that you haven't included, to peer review, to your own editing, to your revision. So really like putting words down on the page or even watching AI spit out a bunch of things is only the palest imitation of the kinds of critical thinking that really goes into an act like writing. Professor Paul Fife at North Carolina State University. Across the Atlantic in Dublin, Professor Lucy has also been experimenting with the potential of ChatGPT. He's been looking at how the technology can be used by academics and scientists. And his findings suggest that it could play a beneficial role in the research process, especially when it's augmented by specific academic expertise. ChatGPT out of the box actually gave pretty damn good results. It's reasonable. It's more than reasonable. It's it's adequate. It's not exciting, but it's fine. When you gave it a bit of expert information, the expert information, the expert tweaking really made it sing. So what we concluded was that this is a really effective tool for assisting people, assuming you know a little bit about where you want to go in terms of doing research. So you had to know a little bit about the area before you could really get the benefits from it. But even if you didn't, if you wanted to sit down and say, give me a research idea on X, it actually wasn't doing a bad job. So we concluded that it was a useful tool, that like any tool, if you know what you're doing, if you know where you're going, you'll get most from it. 
If you think of people who are starting out on their research careers and or you think of people who might be in environments where the pressure is heavy for more teaching and administration, and yet the expectation is that they'll do a lot of research. And this might be typically places in the global south where universities and institutes of education are trying to do it all in a sense and try and you know, have absolutely top-notch teaching, but also encourage their researchers to address international standards more so than they might have been able to do so. This would allow people to cut through some of that you know, time-consuming fog at the start and say, how do I really point myself towards something that's going to be on point, therefore giving them that early stage boost. And once you get into the system, then, you know, there are mechanisms through peer review and conferences and et cetera to, to refine it. But it's getting off the ground. It's like getting to orbit is the hardest part. This gives you an early stage rocket boost. There are ethical implications around the use of this kind of technology with regard to research. How does it shape our ideas or how will it shape our ideas of, of creativity, of ownership, the actual conceptual side of research? We've already seen a number of papers in journals that I think, you know, and I'll put my cards on the table, ought to have known better, where people have attributed as one of the authors, ChatGPT. So that's one issue. Can this truly be creative? And I think the answer is no, it can't. It's not sentient. ChatGPT is a tool and it would be as sensible to use Grammarly or you know, Mendeley as an author as it would be to use ChatGPT. So that's the first thing in terms of authorship. The second issue is slightly deeper. The issue is when does something stop being Brian or Anthony's work and start being something else? And that is not something that to which there is a, or I think can be a definitive answer. Let's go back to our, our, our research. Let's say that we sit down and we say, okay, we've, we've, we've got this idea and we've, we've, we've refined it and we go off and we do it. Where did the original idea come from? To what extent was it us, the humans, or was it the machine? Now, I think the solution there is that whenever you do something like this, you identify in a footnote or you know somewhere, initial research generation was assisted by the use of the tool ChatGPT. And then if the editors or reviewers want to get more into that, they can ask perhaps for an online appendix to show what exactly did you do. The key thing in science, apart from you know being as accurate as you can be, should be replicability and reproducibility. Can I reproduce this if I have the same information at the same stage as the person who did it? And while you can never set foot in the same stream again, you can give people information as to what you did. So I think that's the second stage. Under no circumstances should ChatGPT ever be an author. There are well-defined rubrics across every area of science, generally agreed rubrics, as to what constitutes authorship. ChatGPT does not do so. And anybody who puts it down as an author, any editor who accepts it as an author, they're just cocking their snook at people who actually are authors. It's the Wild West out there right now in terms of attribution. We're seeing guidelines merge in real time right now because we don't really know yet what normal practice ought to be. And more importantly, we don't know whether or how to accept AI output as credible knowledge. It's generally good practice to default to transparency right now. But the sorts of usual things we do, like putting quotes around someone else's words, doesn't make any sense if AI has been involved in the brainstorming, conceptualization, and organizing of your work from the get-go. How does it change our understanding of knowledge then, of human knowledge, if we have this level of assistance? Well, that's a real big question. There are a few interesting 
ways I've seen other scholars approach that. One is by thinking about what AI is good at, which may not be creativity in the sense of, of coming up with things out of the blue, given that it's trained on existing data and in existing knowledge. However, what it might be good at is exploring what's called the latent space between domains that we might not intuitively connect. And this is where you see so many very, very curious experiments in AI art, the synthetic visuals that, that blur and blend different kinds of genres or content are not necessarily the computer being creative, but it exploring the latent space between categories and domains of experience that are in our world. There's a lot of really interesting creative potential when you enter into dialogue with those sorts of prompts and possibilities. The other way this makes sense to me is if we think about it, again, not as an intelligence itself, but as a way of accessing existing human intelligence or what's been called a cultural technology, the way that libraries are a cultural technology for accessing other human intelligence. And it's also where we need a lot of caution because there's no way that an AI is equivalent to a library in the sense of all the labor that goes into creating, curating, and organizing the information in a library compared to what goes into the black box of a text-generating artificial intelligence which, as it has been shown, overrepresents a northern hemispheric English corpus in its training data and probably reproduces the same kind of biases and hegemonic viewpoints that it finds there. Aaron Snoswell from QUT. These kinds of systems aren't going to go away, are they? I know there's a lot of discussion about is this good for us or is this bad for us, but the reality is it's here to stay, isn't it, in one form or another. How do we negotiate a pathway whereby this kind of technology can be useful for us and not get in the way, not cause problems? Yeah, that's a great question. And when I have the answer, I'll come back to you and you you can give me my Nobel Prize. (laughs) (laughs) No. I think safeguards and responses to this type of technology Probably it's true in many cases, but they need to be wide-ranging. And what I mean by that is there needs to be lots of people involved. So, for example, government bodies have a role to play in terms of coming up with regulations, policies, best practices. That's part of the answer, I think. Um, Obviously, organisations and individual experts in the AI industry are key stakeholders here and need to take, I think, need to take the ethical dimensions and implications of their work much more seriously than is currently done, for example. But it also comes down to users of these systems, for example, like you and I, people that are going to interact with these systems. It's important that you understand how they work, at least at a high level. Teaching students about how to safely and responsibly use these tools, I think, is a really important thing as well. And finally, news and media organisations such as yourself, Anthony, I think need to do their part as well by reporting on this type of technology with a large grain of salt and uh, not catastrophizing or overhyping. And no comment from me required, of course. This is Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. Much of the discussion around generative AI models concerns education and research, as we've heard. But advanced chatbots like ChatGPT are also being talked about as a replacement for search. Microsoft is already working to incorporate ChatGPT into its search engine Bing. And the operators of China's largest search engine, Beidou, have also said they're taking a similar approach. So sooner or later, no doubt sooner rather than later, we'll all be conversing with an AI chatbot on a regular basis. Sandra Vakta 
is a Professor of Technology and Regulation at the Oxford Internet Institute at Oxford University. The interesting and exciting and also terrifying thing about the technology is that it is so versatile, right? We, we have seen that you can use it for academic purposes, you can use it for creative purposes, but you can also use it for operating search engines. And what that means is that on the on the positive, exciting side, right, um, it could help to make search results more personalized or more interesting to you or maybe helps you save some time because it offers you you know predefined information that is readily available to you which is great right if you have a quick question then this technology can help you get an answer that is very succinct exactly tailored to your needs that's the good side but that is also the bad side in itself or the potential bad side in itself because it's offering you a snippet a quick answer, and you are maybe more inclined to believe it or trust it because it has been offered to you on a silver platter. And because it has a more, or it seems as though it will have a more personal side to it than conventional search. Absolutely, yes. It just looks more convincing and compelling, but that doesn't mean that the information provided to you is actually accurate. The issue is that this wasn't created by human, like a human that gives you a detailed, well-researched answer where the person actually did go and study to find the right answer to that question. It is something that was scrambled together by an algorithm that doesn't know what's right or wrong and is offering to you this information with like a self-confident manner. If we do see technology companies going down this path with search, using generative AI language models in their search engines, is that likely to exacerbate the problems that we already have around the control and centralization of information and knowledge? Yes, absolutely. And again, a good side and a bad side of it in a situation where there's so much information on the internet that no person would be able to get a good overview of what's out there. You kind of need somebody that is a guardian of information or somebody that provides you information in an accessible way. But this job comes with a lot of responsibility and power because you are also not just the guardian, but also the gatekeeper in that sense, right? And so even though there is a, a need for some structured overview of information, that also comes with a lot of responsibility. And I think that's just something that we have to, to keep in mind in the future. I know some people argue that the onus for identifying when a an AI chatbot is used to generate text or ideas should fall back onto the developers, you know, in particular the big tech companies. But how realistic is that? Because wouldn't it better suit their business model not to be transparent about the use of AI text generation? Well, I mean, you could see it that way in a cynical way. I guess. But if you look at what the media has reported on the last couple of months, it's not necessarily a positive image that came associated with that technology, right? And you have to think long term as well. If you have a technology that can lead to so much unrest or distrust or despair or, you know, human rights violations, this is not necessarily something that you would want to have associated with your business let alone that in some cases it could also be illegal that certain information that, for example, is illegal is, is being disseminated on the net. So there is, let's say, uh, an ethical incentive to make sure that the technology is being deployed, but there could also be the stick, if you will, if you know information is disseminated that is actually illegal. 
And speaking of the stick, the EU, the European Union, is currently working to develop broad standards for the use of artificial intelligence. This is work, it has to be said, that was begun well before ChatGPT burst onto the scene. So, will they be making recommendations about AI generative language models? And if so, what sort of impact could that have on the technology's development and deployment? That's a really, really good question. And so the positive thing to say again is that I'm very, very happy that the European Union has taken the step to regulate AI in a comprehensive way. But as you rightly say, the whole framework started to be developed before we were really aware of this type of technology or like the impact of this this type of technology. And so in the AI Act, for example, what we have is we have a couple of, of applications that are banned, for example, and then we have applications that are seen as high risk. And this is where the meat of the regulation lies. So the, the framework says that certain applications are supposed to be seen as high risk and there are heightened obligations for those who want to deploy them. And those include areas such as criminal justice or employment financial services and things like that. So there are eight areas that the legislator has identified as high risk. Well, again, this was created when we didn't know about the impact of ChatGPT yet. So it is not seen as high risk in the current framework. And you cannot really blame the legislator for that because we just didn't anticipate that it would have that massive impact on our society. And that just actually leads me back to one of the first criticisms that I had around this framework is that we really need to be agile in terms of identifying new risks or new risky technologies to make sure that they also are being elevated in that high risk spectrum and therefore are being governed under those rules. Unfortunately, under the current AI Act, it is not that easy to put new high risk areas into the realm of regulation. And so I hope, at least, because we are still negotiating the framework, it's not done yet. So I'm hoping that we will find a better way of being more agile of, you know, so we can scan for risks and then regulate those technologies in a sensible way. On this program, we've looked at another tech phenomenon, deep fakes, and at some of the research that's going on at the moment into trying to develop effective ways of detecting fake video footage. Could similar detection technology, in your estimate, could it be developed for AI-generated text? Yes, and many people have exactly talked about this issue, that when you think about JetGPT, that it is a variant of traditional fake news or deep fakes, because you're generating something that is either text or it's video or it's pictures, and it's trying to pretend to be something that it is not. So it's it's the same family of fakeness, if you will. And so in that area, people have suggested things like the outputs should be accompanied with a watermark. So if you're generating a deepfake or output from JetGPT, there should be a watermark. So the person that is looking at the picture, looking at text is immediately aware that this was artificially created. And yes, good idea. But obviously, there is a cat and mouse game involved in that, because at some point, technology will also be able to reverse that watermark, right? So if you, you know, put some effort into it to make it identifiable, others will put a lot of effort into it to make it de-identifiable again, which again, doesn't mean that this is a bad trajectory. It just means that there is probably never a solution that is 100% perfect, because whenever you're building a system, there will be somebody trying to game that system. 
Sandra Vakta from the University of Oxford. And what have we learnt? Well, like all new consequential technologies, there are pros and there are cons. Let's end today with, if not a completely positive observation, at least one that might reaffirm the value of human talent. As these types of generative AI tools become more widespread and more common, we're actually going to see a premium being placed on human-generated content. Because if everyone can generate artworks, for example, uh, cheaply and easily with one of these tools, people are going to care more about art that was made by a human. And it's no different in the case of writing or text. So I think we're going to see this interesting phenomenon where it gets easier to produce content of a low quality, perhaps, but people will develop an increasing taste and appreciation for human-made content that is perhaps not necessarily assisted by an AI tool. Aaron Snoswell. We also heard today from Sandra Vakta, Paul Fife, and Brian Lucy. My co-creator here at Future Tense is Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.